Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Let's talk a little about awards, shall we? Let me just say at the outset here, I'm not a fan. I've never believed in the arts as a competitive sport. Is the Ballad of Buster Scruggs better than Roma? Is Hereditary better than A Quiet Place? Is Mandy better than Bird Box? And how about Tigers Are Not Afraid versus Satan's Slaves? Is one technically better than another, or did you enjoy it more than another? I just don't know how you can put the apples against the oranges. I'll take both, please, as well as a watermelon, a banana, and a couple of kiwis. I don't pay much attention to the Golden Globes, the Oscars, or any of the other big awards shows. I appreciate the purpose behind them to single out works of excellence in their various fields, but I just don't know how to take excellent movies and make one place above the rest. I've had various works of mine up for Emmys, but never attended the Emmy Awards and never watched the show. It's a kind of performance art that is just not something I can get worked up about. I'd rather leave that to the racetrack. However, I must say, it's a nice feeling to get awards and put them on the mantle, which, of course, contradicts everything I just said. Humans are contradictory creatures, what can I say? Though I don't make them, I do enjoy various year-end lists of favorite movies. It's often where I hear about movies about which I might otherwise have remained ignorant. But to rank them in order just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I love listening to my compatriots over on the Shockwaves podcast, making and defending their year-end favorites, for example, and I'm happy to debate the merits of my favorites with my friends. But choosing a best-of-anything award just seems impossible to me. Give me one, and I will gratefully accept it. But put me in charge of awarding them, and I will be at sea. I just can't make that choice, and it's tough to fill in my Director's Guild and Writer's Guild and Screen Actors Guild ballots, often to the point where I just can't do it. Which is one reason this show doesn't feature film reviews. We are here to celebrate our genre and the filmmakers responsible for it. The making of movies and television, the writing of books and screenplays, the performances behind the characters we love or hate, that's what fascinates me, and I can but hope you share with me that fascination. One of the best-known actors in the horror genre didn't start there. Barbara Crampton first gained renown in the world of soap operas. But in 1985, she starred in Stuart Gordon's brilliant and wonderfully operatic classic, The Reanimator. In many ways, it changed the course of her life. We'll learn all about her past, present, and future after this. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. Your father was a carny. Yes, he was. I want to know about that. I find this yeah. fascinating from the movie Freaks, Todd Browning having mm -hmm. been a carny and all mm -hmm. that. Please tell me what that life was like. It was, uh, it was, it was the best of times and the worst of times, <laughs> yes. to be honest with you. I'd love to hear both ends yeah. of that spectrum. Well, it was fun. Okay, I'll say that. Um, we traveled throughout Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Virginia every summer. And we would go to the state fairs and sometimes small little carnivals. And they usually lasted about a week. And then you'd take a few days and break down uh, the joints, as we called them, the mm -hmm. games, and then put them in a truck and drive to the next place. And Were set you up raised again. in this atmosphere from a very early I was, age? yeah, from, from as far as I can remember until I was about maybe 13 years old. Mm -hmm. I traveled every summer. And... You know, my my dad was very much uh, of an entertainer himself. Uh -huh. They called him the best Mike man in the business. And tell he, me what that is. Well, yes. So he took um, a just a regular old coat hanger, 
and he fashioned it around his neck and he had a microphone and he would tell jokes and stories and he would just entreat people to come in and play the game and spend money and try to get them to stay there and not go to somebody else's game. So he had about... So he was a barker? Yes. So he had about, I'd say about five to eight different games. You Mm. know, there were some people that had rides and mostly those were the people that owned that particular um, franchise of that carnival. So we traveled with Ken Penn Amusements and then there was Straits shows. We also traveled to California at one point. That's where I fell in love in Cal- with California. Ah, um, okay. But when we were down in, um, in the South and, in in, you know, on the East Coast and sort of, you know, just below New York and Pennsylvania mostly, um, it was the Ken Penn Amusements. And, it was a just an interesting bunch of characters that traveled, right? Mm-hmm. We were a family, and I I'm one of five children, and oh, wow. there were other people that traveled that had had kids, but a family of seven on the road with on the, the road, yeah. And um, but there were other people who were the ride boys who really didn't have regular jobs and they would just travel to carnivals or teeth. Yeah. I mean, who can afford that on a ride boy's salary? Um, and then, uh, there, there was a family, couple families that traveled with us who were gypsies and the kids never went to school. My first boyfriend when I was 11, don't tell my parents, um, <laughs> was, was a gypsy kid who never went really? to school. And so these were Romas? The, the, yeah, yeah. I mean, all they knew was life on the road and, wow. you know, trying to get people to spend money and, mm. and that was their life. And, and, a, you know, back then I feel like it was more of a wholesome way to spend an afternoon uh-huh. and it was more of a wholesome entertainment today. It's sort of depicted as, you know, something very trashy. And there was that as well. I mean, there was a, a tough element and, you know, tough people that, that, uh, traveled with the fairs and carnivals. And, and also there was a lot of drinking and gambling going on. And, you know, my dad was a bit of a, I don't know how you say, you know, he had a roving eye and, Mm -hmm. you know, he'd have different people working for him. And if he fancied one, uh, you know, there were affairs and tears from my mom and, you know, all sorts of weird stuff like that. Um, so those were the worst of times. <laughs> yeah. But the fun times were um, taking naps in, in boxes of stuffed animals. And wow. Kind all of, the prizes from the games? Yeah, the prizes from the games and, and riding the tilt-a-whirl a hundred times a day or getting free fried bread dough, <laughs> um, going into the freak, uh, tent. So this and not was a carnival that, that had a freak show mm-hmm. and did it have like the, the stripper stage, things like that, or. I don't or, remember any strippers, but you know, maybe I just was too young to, to be wise to that. Yeah. But, you know, we did have a lot of freak shows and we traveled with animals and, and a lot of rides and there were, there were, it de- depending on how big that particular fair was, um, sometimes they would have um, musical acts come in, and sometimes they were really big fairs, and mm-hmm. sometimes they were small. So, like they were state or county fairs, mm-hmm. or there was just a traveling carnival that yeah. was and, of its own merits. Yeah. yeah, and so in the beginning of the year, my dad would map out where we were going to go every week, mm-hmm. and that's so he was of, the head of this carnival. He wasn't, but you yeah. know, you you would travel mostly with one show mm-hmm. but sometimes he would veer off and go to a couple different shows for whatever reason I so don't know So there'd be a circuit a, a circuit yeah there was a circuit but you'd you'd veer off a circuit and then you'd come back and mm-hmm. kind of go with the original people so So you were raised in entertainment uh, not mm-hmm. the kind of entertainment we might normally think of uh, as an accomplished actress who who went to school and studied theater and the like. Right. Uh, but what was your education like while you were on the road? Were, was your mother or your teacher, your father, or the people around you? Oh, right. Well, you know, I did go to regular school during the school year. So so this was normally during the summer months? It was just during the summer. My ah, dad would go down to Florida or go to California at some point when we had to go back to school and the weather got too bad in the area that we lived on Long Island. Um, 
you know, to travel. So we would come home and go to school, and then he would continue on into someplace that was a little more temperate, Georgia, Florida, um, California, as I said. So nine months of the year, you lived a normal Mm -hmm. family life. Correct. And then three months, you'd be on the road with the show. Yeah. So tell me. Yeah, that was my sleepaway camp. (laughs) (laughs) A long camp Mm -hmm. every year. Uh, So tell me how it stoked your interest in the arts or in entertainment and and the direction that you eventually took into acting. Yeah, I don't I don't know if it came directly from that. Um, I, as I said, my dad was kind of an entertainer and able to you know have people come to his game and and spend money and and the like. Um, so I think he was the first performer that I recognized, and my father was a bigger than life character. And very robust and had a facile um, grasp on a lot of different stories and jokes and things like that. So it was always interesting to just hear how he would talk to people. Um, Perhaps that sort of infused me with a love of entertaining people. But also when I look back and I think about it, there were so many interesting characters that I traveled with that I got of a lot of character studies, you know, in my brain and mm-hmm. absorbed a lot of different types of more on the fringe, I suppose, right. you know, those types of people. But, um, it definitely gave me, I'd say a fearlessness because I just was exposed to people that were just letting it all hang out, you know, right. um, they weren't your normal, nine to fivers, you know, going to church. And mm-hmm. um, and yet you were uh, raised a Catholic. Was mm-hmm. the church an important part of your family's life? Mm-hmm. I guess. I, I mean, I made my first communion. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> sort of. We went yeah. to church a little bit, but it felt like it was more of a community thing mm. and a social, cultural thing rather than a religious um you know, uh, aspect to that for my family. And, and that sort of veered off. So that wasn't a guiding part of your life. It was just an accoutrement of some Mm -hmm. sort. So what do you rebel against when your father's a carny? Exactly. Right. Well, there, there's nothing right. I mean, (laughs) when I was younger, when I was 11, I, you know, Oh gosh, when I was on the carnival lot one time, um, I remember, uh, I was exposed to drugs very early because there was mm-hmm. a lot of people doing um, doing LSD and um, smoking a lot of marijuana. And people gave me stuff. And I remember somebody who worked for my dad giving me four-way window pane oh, wow. to take. And Which I was is like, LSD. Yeah. And I thought, and I, I was like maybe 12. And, oh my God! Yeah, and I thought, should I take this? It sounds kind of interesting. <laughs> Did you polish your third eye? Mm. <laughs> well, I thought, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to take this because I don't feel quite comfortable doing that. So I'm going to trade it for some marijuana. Oh. So I traded it to another carny <laughs> and said, "You can have this. Can I have some pot from you?" And I smoked pot at a very early age. So it was 12 the first time you sampled Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I drank at a very early age. I was mm. exposed to that pretty early. Um, but it never was something that kind of ruled me. And I'm not an addictive personality. So I tried it and it was fun. And, you know, I continued to do it throughout my life a little bit, but never got caught up in that. Well, what attracted you? What was the movie that got you excited about the idea of acting? Was there a singular moment where that window mm-hmm. opened for you? You know, when I <clears throat> when I was younger, growing up initially on Long Island, um, before we moved to Vermont, I I used to come home after school, and there was a couple of things I watched. So first of all, I watched um, Dark Shadows. That <laughs> I came, knew you were going. I, to say you that. knew it, right? <laughs> Um, so that came on at three o'clock every day and school got out at like two forty five or two fifty and I would race on my bicycle to get home because I didn't want to miss any of it. You know, Joan Bennett and, and Jonathan Frid and and I 
I really loved that particular show. And I loved all the ladies Mm -hmm. in the show, but I really identified more with Barnabas Collins. I I loved his character. So the Jonathan's vampire character. had the, vampire, the allure. Yeah. I really, oh my God, I I really wanted to be a vampire just watching him. He was mm-hmm. so alluring and sexy and cool and the way his hair was on his forehead and there yeah. was like little, I don't know, a Almost pattern or something. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it was really cool. So that was one thing that I watched that I really loved. Although it gave me nightmares, mm. I still continued to watch it. And then I also used to watch the Million Dollar Movie. Yeah. And that came on at four o'clock every day. Right. And they'd repeat a movie all week long on the Million Dollar a Movie. A lot of right? times. Yeah. Yes, they would. Um, and so, you know, I used to watch movies with Betty Davis and Miriam Hopkins and Danny Kaye. Those were my three favorite oh. actors oh. growing up. And Jonathan Frid. <laughs> and Jonathan Frid, yeah. So Interesting mix. <laughs> so, you know, a vampire and a lot of people that were doing over-the-top acting. That kind of explains my career. <laughs> <laughs> well, having lived a bit of an outre life during the summers, hmm. do you think that's what made you identify with vampires and, and an interest in the supernatural? Uh, or was that just one of many different kinds of entertainment that you enjoyed? Were you particularly drawn to the genre films and things? Um, to be honest, I wasn't really drawn to the genre per se when I was younger. I think it was something that grew on me as I started working in it. But there, I felt like I had an understanding of characters that were, you know, fringe-like characters. Mm-hmm. And you certainly see that in horror movies a lot yeah. you know you're you're dealing with people that have issues in their life and are trying to overcome their fears or you know we as viewers watch people trying to overcome their fears and they're facing a lot of difficulty sometimes and i grew up with people who i think were facing a lot of difficulty and they were my friends and people that were my parents friends and I saw them all as very normal, mm. you know. I mean, did I didn't, you feel like you were mm-hmm. a fringe person? Um, right, that's a good question. Probably, I I don't think you think you're a fringe person while you're a fringe person. <laughs> well, you can but feel like an outsider. Back, yeah, yeah. I think I felt like I was an outsider because I didn't. I felt like I didn't have a completely normal life. <laughs> well, up. you didn't. <laughs> yeah, and I knew that. I mean, I yeah. knew that. Most people's dads went to work and came home and had dinner together. And, you know, my dad, we were we were on a carnival lot for three months out of the year. And then the other months, my dad was, as I said, was a little bit of a philanderer. So <laughs> he would leave and and we wouldn't see him maybe for a year uh-huh. because he would be off with some lady that he met on the carnival lot when my mom wasn't around. And Where then, the classiest women can be met. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> And then he would, you know, they would break up and then he would come back and, and be with my mother and have another child. And then we would go out on the road again and then we would come home and then he'd meet some other lady. And, you know, there was no end to my father's drinking and gambling and affairs and things like that. So I guess growing up, that was my life and I thought it was normal. But looking back, it really wasn't. And it wasn't consistent Hmm. And it didn't feel like I had a great foundation. And my mother was always sad because oh. of, you know, yeah, it was yeah. really sad for my mom. And I felt bad for her. So much so that when I moved to California and I and I got my first really big job, I called my mother and I said, you know, you haven't been with dad for like four or five years now. And you really can't let him come back again. I'm going to give you the money to divorce him because I have the money now. Because my mother, when my dad wasn't around, I mean, my mother didn't work. And it was a different generation then. And we lived on food stamps and, Mm -hmm. you know, the dole, as they call it. And um, so I wanted to help my mom. And I wanted to help myself. And I wanted my mother to divorce that no good rat, my dad. And so I gave her the money to divorce him. And and she did. Yeah. Finally. It made her life better. I think so. There was a, you know, it was hard for her to make decisions. Obviously, if she kept taking him back and Mm -hmm. he would leave and whatever. Um, 
but when she finally divorced him, I think she felt like she had finally taken action against him finally. And she said, that's it. I mean, I'm, I'm just never taking him back again. And, you know, then we have, there's five kids in our family. So we all got older and we helped my mother financially um, for the rest of her life. She just died a couple of years ago. And so, you know, she had a nice, nicer life in her later life than she ever had. And all of us gave her money and we supported her for the rest of her life. That's great. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as your upbringing, and when you went to school, when you decided to go to college or university, mm. you were pursuing theater arts. And when did that right. decision happen? You know, um, grown, so I was born on Long Island, but then when I was 11 or 12, we moved to Vermont. Mm-hmm. And that's where my parents were originally from. And I had the inkling from the time I was about 11 that, yeah, this is what I want to do. I want to be an actress, and and this is the career path I want. But I didn't know if I was going to work in movies, television, theater, whatever, but I thought, well, I need to get a foundation in, in theater. I just, you know, just came to me that I thought I should do that. Um, but again, we didn't have a lot of money, and I I didn't apply to any of the big major schools. I didn't know how I was going to pay for anything. Right. So I went to um, a, a community college called Castleton State College that was only about 30 minutes or so away from where we were in Rutland, Vermont. And it actually turned out to be quite a wonderful experience uh-huh. for me because for whatever reason, maybe the department was small, but... They gave me all the leading roles. There you, you go. Know? So well, um, I played Sally Bowles in Cabaret. Oh, nice. So you sang as well? I, I sang. I took singing lessons. And um, I also did stagecraft. Uh-huh. I worked in the costume shop. And I learned how to drape and draft patterns. I could actually make something for you. Uh, that was from another time period. And uh, I really... And I did lighting and I did directing I did it all so I felt like it was a well-rounded um education that I had were you a good student I was a fair student I think I um I mean you're very articulate you're very mm -hmm. good you you write as well I like writing a lot yeah. yeah um I think I was a fair student I I was a good student at the subjects that I liked. Ah, okay. Um, but at this, you know, when you're in college, you also have to take other subjects, right? So <laughs> right. I wasn't good in math, and mm-hmm. um, I wasn't really great in science. But I did very well in all of my theater classes, mm-hmm. and I I loved being a part of the live theater experience for the time that I was doing that in in uh, in college. So. When I graduated, I thought, well, geez, I'm, I'm doing theater, so I might as well move to New York. And The obvious move, yeah. Yeah, and that was closer by. So I moved to New York and started working at the American Theater of Actors, mm-hmm. and I did a couple of plays for them. I, I played um, in King Lear. I played the youngest daughter, Cordelia, uh. and um, I was working on Madison Avenue, waitressing, making us. I was going to say a shitload, but you can, can say I swear? Shitload here. Okay. Yes. You um, can even say fuck. Making, it's okay. <laughs> I was making a ton of money being a, a waitress, and I thought, well, there's something wrong with this because I wasn't getting paid a lot for, for theater. For theater. Yes. So then, you know, I, I met, I haven't even looked up this guy in a very long time, but I met a guy who did um, movies of the week, and he was visiting a friend that I knew, and his, his name is Paul Pompian. And okay. he, did, he did movies of the week. He did you mean movies directed of the week. or acted. He was a producer. A producer. So he said to me, you know, Barbara, um, most of the jobs you're going to get in New York, you're not going to get paid very well for. But if you move to Hollywood, you're going to get paid for all of those jobs if you work on screen. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to move to Hollywood. <laughs> and he gave me his number and he said, I'll help you. So I came to Hollywood and he helped me get my first agent actually. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it was on a whim in a way that I decided to move to Los Angeles. 
Um, and, and what was your first experience on mm-hmm. screen mm. and, and, and mm-hmm. the difference between acting for the stage and acting yeah. technically for the screen? Yeah, very different, right? So my first, so he helped, Paul helped me get um, my commercial agent. I started going out on commercial auditions. Mm-hmm. And then I needed a theatrical agent. And, you know, uh, I, was, I was, again, working as a waitress at the Cafe Figaro. Do you remember that Yeah, I do indeed, yeah. That was like near Melrose, I think, and Doheny. Um, And I met a guy who said, oh, my, he was an actor, and he said, my agency is looking for uh, younger actresses, and would you like to go and meet them? I've heard that line before. Yeah, you've heard that (laughs) line, right? Oh, yeah. I I mean, I have those kinds of stories too, but this, this didn't turn out to be that one. So I went in and I met with these guys, Bikel and Jennings, they were called, and they had mostly um, athletic stars, but they had a few actors. So they sent me on my first audition, and it was for Days of Our Lives. And I went in and did my audition, and then they said, oh, we want you to come back and test for it. And so then uh, I tested for it, and then I did wind up getting that job. So then they signed me because right. I got the job. Right. Um, and I w- And you're asking me about you know, the acting styles. So the, the acting styles of, uh, being on stage is like, you have to fill up the space you inhabit and force your intention on the other actors. And if you're doing that, you know, you're embodying something bigger than life for that energy that you need on stage. And I was doing that too, when I was working on days of our lives and I was the biggest actress they had and they kept telling me, Oh, tone it down. Less is more, less is more. Because the camera's right in your face. You're not watching it from 30 rows back. Right. But they helped me and they groomed me and they took their time with me. And I feel like they helped me act, you know, at least on video. And I was working with an actor named John Delancey. Mm -hmm. Um, and he's really a wonderful actor, and he was working with me. So I feel like I got some great training on that show. And I, I was on that show for about a year um, before my character just needed to be killed by the <laughs> yes. Salem slasher. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, it, interestingly, it seems like it's a good stepping stone between stage and film because it's sort of a hybrid. You're doing it. Well, a lot of soap operas in the beginning there were live yes. or next to live, mm-hmm. and you had to memorize your 30 minutes of show right. uh, before you do it. So it was more like stage than mm-hmm. a feature film, which is done in bits and pieces right. more slowly. So did you find that to be something that helped you make a transition when you did? Well, you did a lot of soap opera. I did, I did a lot in, you know, in a 12-year period, you yeah. know, working on horror movies with Stuart, and I, I did a few... Well, we'll talk about like how that, that changed, yeah, I did, I did all that, of course, but, yeah. Yeah, but I, I feel like you're right. Um, I had to memorize a lot of dialogue. Uh, even though it wasn't live, you had to be, you had to shoot a show a day. Right. So if your character was heavy on that particular day, you might have as much as 40 pages of dialogue, and you had to know it. And they would give you the script a week in advance, but you might have three or four scripts that you had to memorize. So you were kind of doing it the day before. I was frantic that whole first year that I was working on a soap opera. I I thought, how am I going to do this? I can't, I can't do it. I can't memorize all this, but you know, it's a muscle like anything else. So the more you work it, the better you get. And soaps, everything, all acting has been toned down over the past number of years. But back then when I started 35 years ago, um, I think, that soaps were a little bit more melodramatic oh, yeah. than they are now. Mm-hmm. And and um, certainly being on stage, <laughs> while not melodramatic, I mean, the energy is just bigger, right? So um, I feel like it was a nice natural progression for me. Well, you actually were awarded Villainous of the Year on uh, Soap yeah. Opera Digest, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Tell for... me uh, about, because we think mm-hmm. of you as the heroine these oh, days. most of the time, right? But yeah. now, then, mm-hmm. you were a villainous. The beautiful woman as villainous was quite a staple of the soap opera. Yeah, I played villains recently, but you're right. When I was younger, I was playing, you know, the, the girl next door, mostly, mm-hmm. But on this particular show, it was um, The Young and the Restless. I played a woman who had a borderline personality personality with psychosis. And so, yeah, she was 
she was villainous and evil um, alongside of, you know, having some mental illness. And uh, that was an incredibly fun part to play. I bet. Um, yeah, it was, uh, I, I, I mean, I was threatening people and killing people and, you know, just uh, doing a lot of bad things. <laughs> um, and yeah, and then working on film and working for Stuart, I was playing nicer characters. So it was kind of interesting to, to have that um, initial villainous role. Yeah, so how did The Reanimator come about? I mean, this was an mm-hmm. independent film from a guy in Chicago, that uh, his first movie, mm-hmm. and it wasn't your first feature film. That was Body Double, I believe. Yes, right? I had, I had, uh, I had one scene in Body Double, but when I got that role, I had three scenes, uh-huh. and two of them were dialogue scenes with, you know, a fair amount of dialogue mm-hmm. with Craig Wasson's character, and the night before. They called me and they said, "Oh, we've cut the dialogue scenes. Aww. Now you just have the scene where you're with the other guy in bed, and Craig Wasson comes and finds you." And I thought, "Oh, jeez, did they plan this? You know, <clears throat> I don't Aww. know. Should I do it? It's Brian De Palma. I better, I better do it. I better do it because it's Brian De Palma." And you know, I did it. It was, it was fun. But yes, that was my first. That was your first. That was my well, first what foray. What was the experience like? First of mm-hmm. all, working on a feature film. Obviously, yeah. it was a very intimate kind of scene that ended right. up in the movie, and comfort or discomfort, right. and working for someone who had recently made Carrie and had right. made history in horror. Yes, well, you know that's why I didn't want to turn it down, right? Because I mm-hmm. thought, well, you know, he uses people sometimes over again, and so I should meet him anyway. And I was a fan of his work, and he's a big time director. So I would be foolish to say no. And also because I grew up in the carnival lot, you know, I wasn't afraid of things. I wasn't, I'm not a shy person anyway. Right. And I grew up in an environment where I had to be an extrovert. So it, it, it wasn't, you know, the scene, the nudity that bothered me, but it, it was that I didn't get the dialogue stuff, right. you know, the real, that was acting. disappointing. That was <laughs> yeah. disappointing. Yeah. And also he's never hired me again. <laughs> <laughs> the bastard. I'm still waiting for that. Um, so what was that experience yeah. like working with him? He oh. was riding high. Yeah. Uh, well, it was fantastic. I mean, I felt like I was on a real professional set yeah. for the first time in my life. A real movie set. We were shooting on location in an apartment and, um, just all the big trucks and all the people and I was you know it I felt like well I've arrived I mean yeah I'm here I'm working on a real a movie studio with movie. a real a studio yeah. movie with a real director so and we did that scene you know the scene was really brief but I think we did it 75 times <laughs> I, I think he was just trying to get a different look from me or mm. you know pick something and he he had the luxury of time right, right. it's not like what we do right, right. Nick yes, like shooting indie. something in 15 or 19 days so yeah. Um, you know, they had a couple of months for that movie. So one day with Barbara Crampton in bed with some guy, yeah, we can do that for five hours. No problem. (laughs) And was there a lot of interaction between you and De Palma? Yeah. He talked to me and he said, well, try this now. You know, you're, you're mad at yourself or you're sad that, that he's caught you or Mm -hmm. you feel bad now or, you know, so he would just call out different directions to me and then I would try different things so you started with one of the filmmakers at the top of his game Mm -hmm. and then along in 1985 along comes Stuart Gordon and how did that come to be and how did you come to be uh, involved well I wasn't the first actress cast in that part I don't Mm -hmm. know if you knew that I did not know that yeah but um the casting director had found someone and then she read the script and her mom read the script uh-huh. and when her mom read this script, beware the parent reading that yes script. <laughs> you know she I don't know how old she was but her mom said no 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 you're not doing this movie you know this is horror and you know there was some a sexy scene involved you yep. know that visual pun that yes. everybody talks about in reanimator yes. and so she we said, can say it yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> so she said um no you're not doing that so they had another casting session and Anthony Barneo was the casting director and he brought me in and I didn't know that Jeffrey and Bruce were not cast in the movie already. They were, in fact. And I was just reading with them. And there was a few other gals around. And I thought, 
wow, these guys are good. I hope they get the yeah. parts. <laughs> they had already had the parts. Right. So they were reading with me to see if I would work with them. And Which is a great way to do a casting session mm-hmm. if you've already cast yeah. those roles to bring it in. Yeah. yeah, so we read the scenes and then Stuart gave us some direction. And I remember him saying, you know, go outside in the lobby and work on the scene again and come back in. And so we did that. It was really fun. I had a yeah. great time. And and Stuart, you know Stuart so well. He's a very hands-on director. Very. And and in the casting session, he was too. He was giving me a lot of direction. Mm. And I'd come from the theater, and he came from the theater, and so yeah. did Jeffrey, and so did Bruce. So I loved that. I love people talking to me a lot about what we're doing. And he he gave me a lot and fed me a lot of stuff, and I ate that up. And so he asked me to be in the movie, and. And then the greatest part about it is that we we rehearsed for about three weeks before we started shooting. That's amazing. I know, and I thought that An was normal. Film. Yeah. <laughs> and then Don't I found out that never yeah. happens. Yeah, yeah, usually it's uh, welcome to the set. Nice to meet you. I know, <laughs> yeah. I know, yeah. and I I feel like that. I mean, the script is great. The writing was great, and everybody was good in their parts. And you know, I mean. It was there was a little magic involved, but there was something about rehearsing for that amount of time, and yeah. it made Stuart feel comfortable too, because that's yeah. what he knew. And it was his first time mm-hmm. coming out of the theater doing a, f- a feature film, right? Yeah. So it was funny because we rehearse. You know, I had the biggest living room for whatever reason, so everybody came over to my house to rehearse. Well, you deserved it. I, yeah, I guess <laughs> so. And um, thank you. And then we would get on set, and then it wouldn't quite match up, right? Mm. And then Mac Alberg, who was our DP, would right. say, "Now Stuart, who worked with Bergman, and yes, yeah, fantastic. Yes. He's fantastic." And he would say, "No, you can't set it up like this because you're going to cross the line." And da da da. Uh. And Stuart would say, "What <clears throat> does that mean, crossing the line? Where, <laughs> where can I put my actors so that uh, this is going to work?" And Stuart kept trying to, you know tell Mac what to do and Mac's like no this is not (laughs) going to work like this crossing the line uh, for those who don't know is if you shoot close up angles in the wrong direction it looks like when you cut the the shots together the characters are looking away from one another rather than towards one another and there's it's not as big a deal these days people are more sophisticated I think with film and, and will accept line crossing if it doesn't confuse the geography. But yeah. DPs and continuity people just would drive you crazy yeah, if you broke that rule. Yeah, they go nuts over stuff like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so that was interesting because being, you know, that was one of my first, that was my first really big thing, Yeah. even though I had done the thing with De Palma. But this um, was a lead. This was yeah. a lead, and it was a big deal. And, and it was Stuart's first movie, and that was a big deal. And so we were all aware of how much of a big deal it was. And, right. and everybody was great on the set. I mean, we had wonderful people, wonderful special effects people and, and you know, good actors. And Stuart was right, right in there with us. I often say if Stuart could play every part in the movie, he would. Um <laughs> Because he knew every character inside and out. And he always says, you know, the actors know the characters more than I do. But he he really infused us with with a lot of stuff. Well, he's also got a very wry sense of humor to the point where you yeah. don't know when he's joking mm-hmm. sometimes. At least my yeah. experience was when we were doing The Black Cat on Masters of Horror. Yeah. He'd say, well, let's just get a real cat and then take its eye out. Right. And it's, a, for one thing, I'm a vegan. Yeah. <laughs> and... It's a, uh, no, Stuart, we're not going to do it. Oh, no, it'd be simple. He's just, yeah. And I didn't know him well enough to know if he was joking or not. I right. thought he was, he, but he's yes. really good at the straight face. He does do the straight face very well. <laughs> and he kind of just wants to see what, he, how you're going to react. I mean, that's yes. why he does that. Yeah. And I yeah. think, you know, a lot of people talk about Reanimator and how funny it is. And there's been some talk about, well, did he mean it to be funny or was it Jeffrey or what? It was a little bit of everything. I do think that also Stuart doesn't know how funny he is sometimes because I think that he and Dennis wrote that script and there was a lot of funny stuff and Jeffrey couldn't have come up with that characterization if it wasn't on the page, right? Absolutely. He carried it a little bit further than Stuart initially wanted him to or thought he was going to. 
Um, and that character took on a life of its own. And initially, it was really the story of Meg and Dan. Right. But it was, it was um, you know, I freely say this. I mean, it's his really wonderful characterization of Herbert West that took over the whole film. Jeffrey's a one-of-a-kind character. One-of-a-kind guy. And yeah, one-of-a-kind actor. And and funny and mm-hmm. smart. Really and, smart, yeah. And, you know, you wonder... Because I'd never seen him in anything before that, I go, wow, this is, is that who this guy is? Or yeah. is this the character he's playing? A little of both. Yeah. In yeah. a way. Because a lot of his other roles, too, embody something that's a little bit over the top, a little yeah. maniacal. Well, the whole movie is operatic in that mm-hmm. it's so big and it it's is so big, colorful. Right? And it's, I don't know how those scenes with all of the makeup effects and, and gore effects and things how long those must have taken to oh, shoot. Oh, my God. Well, you know, at the end of 12 hours, you're supposed to go home, right? <laughs> we to. didn't go home. Yeah. Because Stuart would make us stay there. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't unusual for us to have a 15 or 16-hour day, and some of the last days, I think, were 18-hour days. Wow. So we could have shot two movies for the time that we spent on that set. And I made more money in overtime on that movie <laughs> than I made in my regular salary. Well, at least you reported the hours properly. Yeah. So tell me what your reaction was to the script. You weren't familiar with being in horror movies, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you'd started watching them and become the scholar of the genre that you are now. Mm-hmm. But yeah, what really. was your reaction when you read it? It had to seem so off the wall to you. You know, to be honest with you, I, I, I was an actress looking for a job and I got one. Yeah. Yeah. So basically it was like somebody wanted to hire me and cool, I'll do it. Right. I, I thought that the script was interesting and funny and made sense. So, um, and I had done a, you know, I'd done Shakespeare. I'd done a fair amount of reading. I mean, I knew, I knew that it was a good script. I didn't know that it was going to be as good as it was. I it didn't it didn't matter to me that it was a horror movie or not because i don't think that you as an actor or a character know you're in a horror movie right. you're in you're you have a set of circumstances that you're working through you're telling a story i'm telling yeah. a story i'm telling my story of my love for dan kane and this other guy comes in he's going to mess it up <laughs> and how can i save and preserve my life with this man that i love you know, when, when this interloper has come into our world. I mean, that, that was my objective. Right. Um, and everything else that happened with my father and, you know, getting carried away by my dad, who's now a zombie, and, you know, all the other stuff was just crazy, but I have to react to that as if it's real. Exactly. Some of the things that bother me are people who treat horror films differently than they would a drama. You mean as an actor? The, or, as an actor yeah. to approach that or to think it's a gutter mm-hmm. rather than, you know, it's all it's all Shakespeare to me. You're right. It, it should be, shouldn't it? I mean, yeah. that's what I was taught in school. <clears throat> you approach everything as if it's Shakespeare and believe everything with your heart and soul. And that's yeah. that was that's my job. Yeah. A lot of people think horror is slumming. Those are people I don't work with. <laughs> but um, were there, there are scenes where you're very vulnerable right. in the film. Yeah. Did those give you pause? Were you made comfortable um, uh, in the shooting of them? Or? Oh, sure. All of it. I mean, it gave me pause. I would be lying if I said, oh, yeah, I was totally comfortable with that. No yeah. big deal. It, I knew that it was, a, I knew that it was a, a, a big scene, and nobody had ever done that on camera before. That's for sure. I, I knew that. I knew it. Um, And I had a certain time period in my contract where you could see me naked. You can be nude this long. It was like three seconds. That's it. So the next time you watch it, you can count. (laughs) 1,000, 2,000, 3,000. That's it. Um, And they cleared the set, of course. And David Gale was awesome and sweet and nice. And... I never felt strange around him. Everybody treated me with respect. That's great. Um, especially Stuart Gordon. I know other gals who have had not such good experiences. Especially in the 80s. Yeah. Especially in the 80s when it v- was very exploitive. It was very bloody, yeah. Yeah. very over the top, and very exploitive of, of women. Um, and, you know, 
thank God the movie was as good as it was because yeah. if it wasn't and I was that exploited, you know, would it have hurt me? I mean, that was something that did occur to me. And you might have felt dirty. I might have, yeah. But the movie was so well received that I was like, oh, no problem. And it's a classic. Yeah. I mean, it's a mm -hmm. one of a kind, despite the sequels. Um, mm -hmm. And it's just an amazing film. So then another H.P. Lovecraft uh, follow-up with Stuart from Beyond. Right. And uh, so tell me about yeah, that experience well, as well. I, yeah, I, I guess, you know, um, I'm not sure why... I've often wondered why Stuart didn't um, take along Bruce Abbott on that journey, but he he took he took Jeffrey and I. I don't I don't know why. I mean, maybe it was just because of the the nature of the new movie and what it was. But he he wanted to switch things around and have me be the evil doctor hmm. and have Jeffrey, you know, be the one that was sort of. Um, the you know, marginalized yeah. or the vulnerable yeah. um, in 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 the film. I think and, that's kind of great to change those expectations mm -hmm. a bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. And um, Reanimator was such a success, and they made so much money on it yeah. that we got an enormous budget for From Beyond. Oh wow! I think the budget on Reanimator was seven hundred thousand dollars, which was a lot of money back then. Okay, for an independent for film, an independent, for sure. Yeah. you know, Halloween was uh, three hundred and forty. Wow, so yeah. we, we had more than they did, yeah. yeah more than double. <laughs> yeah, and and th I think they gave us like $5 million to make oh my God. Beyond, right? And we made it in Italy, mm -hmm. and uh, we were, you know, I mean, it, he did so well on the first one, they gave him carte blanche. I mean, we had, I think, six weeks <clears throat> to film that, a lot of special effects. Um, it was my first time out of the country, so mm. I flew to Rome and woke up in another time zone and it was all really magical and wonderful and it snowed for the first time in like 30 years oh wow the, the fir our first day on set so That's we pretty all great. yeah we all thought oh maybe this is a good omen for us um it was very cold we shot in the old Dino De Laurentiis studios mm. and um he had gone bankrupt at that time oh, and owed Gino a lot of Cita, money. Yeah. yeah. So they, they'd taken anything that they could out of the walls to sell. Oh, my God. So there was no heat in the building. And it was freezing. It was in April, but there was it snow. It was snowing, yeah. It was snow. Um, so, when, you know, I was kind of scantily clad a couple of times in the movie. <laughs> I was really freezing my butt off. Um, but it, it, was a great, it, was a, it was a great role for me, first of all. I have to say that. I mean, I start out as a doctor, and then I, I'm trying to, you know, save Jeffrey's character and do some investigating, and then I become this sort of femme fatale, you know, sort of, you know, going into my, my inner sexuality and, you know, things that have been repressed, and then I come out the other side and I'm a heroine and then I go crazy at the end. <laughs> what? Who gets offered a role like that? Yeah. Right? So... Um, and by that time, I feel like Stuart and Jeffrey and I had kind of a shorthand with one another, yeah. and we worked really well together. Um, it was hard for Jeffrey the, wearing all that makeup and, mm. you know, the bald cap that he had to wear. Right. And his character was sort of, you know, just, I don't know. It's just, not fun when you have to mm, address so much technical stuff as yeah. opposed to just the creative approach. And there was a lot of technical stuff on, on that film. We had a lot of special effects people like 30 or 40 people worked on oh that film you know in different aspects from from um the united states and and there in in italy um it was a difficult shoot mm -hmm. but it was, was it a troubled shoot no not at all no yeah. it was just not, complicated it's just complicated and took long and and again you know you just don't say no to Stuart. so when he doesn't <laughs> get what he wants um he's like one more take guys and let's try this or you know saying it to the crew and we had mostly an Italian crew right. and they were very affable and nice to him and um, we had two hour lunches with wine every day there you it go. was it was it was pretty nice it, it, it was a nice shoot I'd say yeah and you know because reanimator was a little bit 
more humorous than he had initially planned. Mm -hmm. He wanted From Beyond to not be funny. So he specifically, you know, directed us in that way. He wanted it to be a serious um, horror film. A little bit of a straitjacket on Jeffrey there, who has such a great sense of humor. I think it was a little bit on Jeffrey. So for me, it wasn't a troubled shoot. I think if you talk to Jeffrey, and I'm, I'm not speaking out of turn here because I'm sure Jeffrey has spoken about it. I've heard him talk about it before. It, it, it was hard for him. That part mm. was hard for him to play, you know, and and it it was hard to be under all that makeup. Yeah, oh, gotta be. Mm-hmm. I've had all that makeup on once when I was a zombie in Thriller. Yeah. And it's not fun. <clears throat> it's not fun no. to have three hours of makeup right. in a chair. Yeah. And his was probably even more extensive than that. Mm-hmm. So did those, being in those films, did those inspire you to look more deeply into the genre? Because you seem to have studied it. Your knowledge is pretty expansive. Well, I, you know, I just... I didn't know that I was a horror movie actress at that time, even, even then. I even, you know, well, I two doesn't really count as being that, but in some ways it does. I mean, if you yeah. were Jamie Lee Curtis in 1978 mm-hmm. or Barbara Crampton in 1988, yeah, um, I guess I felt like, oh, I I've been in a couple of successful horror movies, so I guess you know this is something that I do. But I, it, I no, I did. The answer is no. I didn't start to. I mean, I watched a lot of horror movies, but I didn't feel like this was my home until I kind of went into retirement for a while. This was after right. Castle Freak. I actually <clears throat> went into a little bit of retirement, but mostly because nobody was calling me and I wasn't getting roles. And right. I felt like I kind of, at 35, aged out a little bit. And I was Right. You you did more soap operas and things after, after Reanimator. I did. Uh-huh. Yeah, I moved to New York and I did Guiding Light for a while and... And, um, you know, then I'd come back and do a horror movie or whatever. I kind of went back and forth. And when I did um, Bold and the Beautiful for a couple of years, Stuart was doing Space Truckers at the time. And he called me for a cameo role. Nice. And, you know, you never get out of a soap opera to do a film role. Right. right. Never. But I went to them and I said, look, I'm going to act opposite Dennis Hopper. (laughs) <laughs> and I'll never get this chance again. Yeah. I'm begging you. I'm only going to be gone for a week. Can you let me out to go do this? And they they said, oh, yes, Barbara, that's a Aww. nice opportunity for you. So they let me go and do that. But, um, yeah, I kind of went back and forth. But, I, you know, I also worked on the soap operas a lot. And this goes back to just growing up in the carnival business because people kept offering me these roles on these soap operas. And it was a regular job. And I got yeah, to go to work yeah. every day and work as an actor and have money in the bank. And so that was why a lot of times I took those roles. And you would be signed to a contract for a year or two, and I would say, sign me up because, you know, I'll make money. But then when I did um, when I did Castle Freak and then, you know, I kind of realized, oh, yeah, I know how to act on film now. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. Then nobody was calling me. So then I t- took a break and had got married and had kids. Right. But so then, you... you- yeah. This was a conscious decision to just become a wife and mother for a while. It was, but I, I do want to answer your question and say that I became more of a student of the genre when I came back with your next. Right. And then I finally Which is a pretty powerful movie and a great role and yeah. really did launch a return. I think so. And they I think you're working more now than ever. Aren't I'm you? working I have a better career now than I had before, in a way. It's great. You know, it's more consistent, I mm-hmm. feel like. But um, and you look exactly the same. Oh, you're so kind, and you need well, you glasses. <laughs> Thank you. It's my age. No, <laughs> um, no, it's true. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I I felt like when I well I got the call from my agent, you know, that Simon Barrett, who's the writer of Your Next, uh, was I. They were interested in me for to play this mother in this in this um, sort of throwback you know, slasher film. And I thought, oh, okay, geez, that'll be fun. I, I really was retired and thought, I'm just, you know, I'm not going to do lark. it anymore. Yeah. It, it, this, I thought, oh, this will be fun. Motherhood's really hard and acting's really fun. So <laughs> let me go away for 11 days. That was my contract for that right. movie um, and go and do this little part and then I'll come back and nothing will happen. Well, I got on that set you know, with Adam Wingard and, yep. um, 
and Simon Barrett and Sharni Vinson, who was the star of the film. And mm-hmm. I was, and I was just so Joe Swanberg and Ty West, all these amazing people. Giants of independent film. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I was so inspired. And then, um, and then Simon Barrett comes over to me with his iPhone and he says, Oh, look, you're, you're, picture is on the cover of bloody disgusting today <laughs> because they've announced that you're in this movie and i said what's bloody disgusting right i didn't know because i really had gone away from the genre and the horror websites and, and were just something you weren't even aware of i wasn't on facebook i wasn't on any social media i didn't know anything so he laughed and he told me you know then he said after the film wrapped he said barbara you're gonna have to get on some of these social platforms because that's the way we all stay in touch with one another now i'm not going to be calling you you know we're not going to have chats on the phone (laughs) and i was like really okay so then i joined the platforms and um started talking to people about movies and and then uh we went to the toronto film festival for the premiere of your next and it was pretty insane and did really well and there was a bidding war for the film and Everybody, yeah, it was a big hit. It was a big hit. So then I I went, oh, okay. I I am so inspired by all these young filmmakers. I I felt like, and I had so much fun in the movie. I had such a great time. It meant so much to me to be asked to be in that film and to be yeah. part of something that was so loved by a lot of people that I decided to rededicate myself to the genre. And that's when I became a student of it. And that's uh-huh. when... I started watching movies that I hadn't seen before, things that I'd missed. Um, I started looking up the people that were working today and what they were doing. And then I started being asked to go to film festivals, which yeah. I've seen you at plenty of times. <laughs> yes. And yeah. and then I realized, oh, that's how you do it today. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, back when we were younger the distribution was already built in. And right. for these independent movies now, the only way to do it is to make the best goddamn film you can, send it to a film festival. Get attention. And yeah. and hopefully it's going yeah, to get like attention it. and get yeah. bought. Yeah. So I, I started, I hopped back on that train and I've been going to the film festivals and meeting other people. And then, I don't know, things just started happening and... People are calling me again. We are still here. It's mm-hmm. just a, a wonderful. Ted Gagan did such a great job. Yeah, Ted Gagan. He yeah. he was one of the publicists on Your Next, and and uh, we became friendly mm-hmm. because of that film. And he was putting this film together, and he said to to me and to Larry Fessenden, he said, "I want to give you two people some good roles that you know I think you deserve." So he wrote those roles for Larry and I and you know and I actually I mean he told me this later I really didn't know that that part was written for me initially he had me read the script just to tell him what I thought of it Mm -hmm. and I remember reading it and thinking hmm I could play this part (laughs) but I didn't (laughs) say that that. to him because I didn't I didn't want to assume right and I I said I really love this script I think it's great you should try to make it and then he called me up two months later and he said well I have this guy named Travis Stevens and he wants to produce it with me and we think we're going to get some money from Dark Sky and I would like for you to do it if we do. And I said, oh, great. <laughs> and he said, which role do you like? And I said, well, I think it's the Anne role is the yeah. one that's right for me. Yeah. And he said, well, I actually wrote that for you and I was hoping <laughs> you were going to say that. And anyway, we started filming maybe another six months later and and that was another gift to me um that was a huge role and um and the movie turned out great and the movie turned out great and you know so what were some of the films that that uh in your studies excited you about the genre like the new movies or old movies things you caught up on that you'd missed or things that were new and and things that that made you think yeah i'm gonna like doing this again well, I, I, so then I started watching all the, the series, you know, the franchises. Mm-hmm. And because I watched like Halloween, you know, and watched um, Friday the 13th. But I didn't watch Friday the 13th part 13, <laughs> yes. you know. So I started watching all of those. 
And then I remember watching The Possession because I had missed that one. Mm. Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer. Oh, yeah. Um, what are some other ones? The Howling I had seen. I'm in um, The Howling. Huh? I have a line in the. Oh, hallway. you do. I do. What do you play in the? At hallway? the very end, my ex-wife and I. Yeah. Uh, have oh. a scene where I didn't know you had an ex-wife. <laughs> yes, um, and uh, I'm. D. Wallace is turning into the werewolf yeah. in the TV studio, right. and they cut to a couple watching in their bathrobes, and I've got TV guide in my hand and flipping through. I say, "What is this?" My big moment. Oh, okay. I'm going to have to go back and watch that again. Oh, maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. Yeah, the, the best of, we'll put together some clips, the best of Mick Garrison. Yeah, it's a very Spain. short reel with me. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully. Um, yeah, so. The Howling's a great the ho- movie. The Howling's a great movie. Yeah. Um, Cujo, you mm, know. Excellent um, stuff. There was a lot, there was a few, few things that I missed. Um, yeah. But you write and love writing. Um, mm. What about writing a movie? Have you written scripts? I'm a good rewriter. Uh-huh. Maybe I'll write something at some yeah. point. But from working on soap operas for so long, I rewrote a lot of my dialogue. And you'd have right. to go to them. Yeah, and that's say, not You'd have to ask. Yeah. You can't. On a movie set, sometimes I can... If you're directing me, I can go up to you and say, do you mind if I say this instead of this? Is that okay? It sounds yeah. a little better. And you'd go, oh, yeah, Of whatever. course. But yeah. um, when you're working in soap operas, you have to take it to the producers and to the director and say, I want to change this. Well, and I was always changing my dialogue yeah, I, all the time because they wrote so fast that, you know, a lot of times it, it just it wasn't good. Yeah. And I yeah. would rewrite a lot of my stuff. So I got pretty facile at that. And, um, and I, you know, I, right now I'm in soft development on a few different projects. And mm. I have one film that I've had four different writers on. And, you know. Is it time for you to maybe come in and do the <gasps> next draft? I don't know. I mean, people talk to me about that. But I, I don't. I don't know, maybe, but, but I, I like, I like the development process and I like some, and I see myself sometimes, I try not to do this because when I'm talking to different writers, you know, I want to tell them what I think the problems are and then it's up to them to solve them. Right. But occasionally I'll say, listen, I see this in my head as an actor who might play this role. I could kind of see it playing out like this. Do you, and I always say to them too, do you mind you know, if I sort of, you know, suggest a few lines of dialogue here. And I, I do that quite often. Well, and you're producing these days, too. Yeah. So, so, so that's, that's part of the job. That's, yeah. part, of, that's part of it, too. Yeah. Well, what excites you about the immediate future? What's coming that, that has you yeah, really excited? Yeah, a few things. I mean, you've been doing Channel Zero. You did <gasps> right, this season I did that of this Channel summer. Zero. Yeah. Uh, with Don Mancini involved mm-hmm. in that, and mm. uh, who was a guest on the show as well. Right, I love Don. Um, he wasn't involved in that particular season oh okay as a writer he wasn't in the writer's room there were a few other people yeah but um uh evan katz was our director right yeah, yeah. and nick antoska is the um person who created the show mm-hmm. and um they were involved in you know all the scripts and i i met nick at a film festival at Sichez um a couple of years ago one of the greatest and, yeah yeah and we became friendly and so they had this role and they thought of me for that and it was really nice to do television after not doing it for so long yeah. television is kind of king right now anyway but it was nice because they had plenty of money and they had plenty of time and they had big trailers and yeah. you know great makeup room and and a regular you, schedule and a regular schedule and yeah. it it was super super nice and uh, I love that series anyway. I was a fan mm-hmm. of the show. I had been watching the show. So I was really happy to be on that. I would love to do more television. Um, but right now what I have going on is uh, I did this movie, Puppet Master, the Lewis Oh, yeah. Reich. The, the, yeah, we, Fangoria Films did, it yes. partnered on that. Yeah, yeah. Dallas Sonye bought Fangoria yeah. and is using that as a launching pad for independent horror movies. And Puppet Master was the first one. And he... He gave Charlie Band um, a certain amount of money so that he could remake some of Charlie's titles uh-huh. and also give Charlie, um, you know, uh, also that Charlie could keep his separate universe and keep making Puppet Master movies. Right. So, and along with some other 
titles. So one of them is Castle Freak. So we're remaking Castle oh, Freak. Oh, wow. And we have And you'll been, be in Castle Freak? I don't think so. There's not really a part for me. But you'll be a producer on it? I'm a producer on it now. And we've been working with a gal on the script for about the last six months. And it's really good. Completely different premise with different people. Um, you know, some of the similar backstory, but um, what I've kind of been telling them and what I was important to me was in remaking it was to kind of bring a little bit more of the Lovecraft universe mm-hmm. into the film. And mm-hmm. so we're, we're sort of doing a little mashup with a few things. Um, oh, great. And with just different characters and I think the script is fantastic she's just doing one more little pass on it so hopefully we'll be able to go into production some point this year and Tate Steinzik who did all the special effects on Puppet Master and also one um one season of Face Off is is directing the film oh great yeah so it's going to be special effects gory heavy and and all that, but the story has to be good, right? You to support the gore, you've story got to have a king. good story. The story is king. <laughs> so I'm working on that, and then um, I have another script that I've had for two years, and I'm in kind of soft development. I don't even know mm-hmm. if that's that's a term. It is now. It is now with a company, um, and this is a movie that's very close to my heart. It's called Jacob's Wife, and um, it's sort of um, it's a horror film, but it's it's uh, what happens kind of in this. Um, it's morphed into post Me Too. What uh, happens in post okay. Me Too, and how do we live together? And it's about a couple's relationship, and they 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 come upon a crisis, and how do they deal with one another and come through it together? And will they stay together or not stay together? And and it's 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 a relationship drama. Kind of, um, well, the horror platform is a great way to get social commentary across in stories. I think it's everything. I think it's, it's what great. we love to do, right? So, That's great. Yeah, so I'm working on that. Well, I'm so excited for what the future holds and the present holds, and thank you so much for joining us on Postmortem. Thank you for inviting me. So uh, happy Barbara, to be here. Barbara, it's always a pleasure. I'm always happy to catch up. Thanks Likewise. Again. If you're enjoying Postmortem, it would be a great, great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, You can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at mickgarrisinterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG and on Instagram on PostmortemGram. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.